So Genesis chapter 34 is an uncomfortable chapter to read. It is seemingly full of evil and void of God, who is never mentioned once in this chapter, and is given us to cause us to ask questions. To ask questions of ourselves and of God. Questions such as, if God is good, then how can he allow bad things to happen to us, happen to innocent people? Questions like, if, is God truly sovereign over all things? And if so, why then do things like this happen? Why do good people have to suffer? Why is there evil in this world? And why would I entitle a sermon, preach from a chapter like this, entitle this sermon, It's a Wonderful Life? Well, pray with me. And then listen to the Lord as he answers these questions through his word. Father, I pray that you would pierce our hearts with the reality of who you are. Father, that because of the truth revealed in this chapter, Lord, that we would see ourselves as who we are. That we would come to embrace you, Lord, to embrace the salvation that you have given to us, Lord, in a manner worthy of you. And that, Father, that our hearts and our minds and our souls would be adjusted, Lord, to the truth of your salvation and the truth of who you are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Then Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her and took her and lay with her and violated her. Our chapter today, chapter 34 of Genesis, is full of man doing what man does best. Evil. And we, we by and large, do not believe this to be true. Even though we are given this truth, told this truth concerning man in Romans 3, 10 through 18, that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they, are, they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift as shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." And this is the same truth concerning man that we're told in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of their thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And we don't believe that this is true. We think that people are generally good. That given the chance, more often than not, people will do the right thing. They will be nice. They will be kind. 
They will help that little old lady to cross the street. They will help get that cat down out of the tree. And we think this way because very often this is the truth. We see man doing kind, nice things all around us all the time. Bringing food to the hungry, planting trees, cleaning up, building hospitals, giving money away. And because of this, we think that people are generally, well, good. And this is why we are shocked by accounts such as ours from today. But that doesn't change the truth of what I said from the beginning, that the thing that mankind does best is not good. It is evil. That doesn't change what God says about humans, that they are not children of light, but that they are evil through and through. And we, as you sit there, and as I stand here, we, we need to determine in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, each one of us needs to determine, is this true or not? And to do this, we would do well to ground ourselves once again in the truth of God. In contemplating the events that are given to us in today's chapter, we would do well first to readjust our perspective a bit, to, to elevate our focus from mere mortals to the immortal. Because to be able to understand, to see this chapter and the events of it in a correct perspective, we have to do that. We are going to need to gain a biblical definition of what evil and good is. And then we're going to need to retain them, to keep them, to hold them, to determine in our minds, to make the commitment to ourselves and then to each other, to correctly use these words in our everyday language and thought. And the reason for this is that when we do, we will finally gain a proper perspective of evil and good. And it is then, it is then, that no matter what happens to us in this life, we will know that this life is a wonderful life. So first, let us define good. Because we so often use that word all the time, we will say, he's a good man, or she's a good woman. And this is a very large part of why, of what the issue is, why we cannot understand chapters such as today. You see, we have a definition of what good means that sways in the wind and changes depending on how we feel. That man who cheats on his taxes, fools around on his wife, we call that man a good man. Because he leads the country well. And that woman who is not chaste, who has questionable morals, is called a good woman because she adopts children and gives money to the poor. And we, those saints, so often we called our loved ones good simply because at some point in our lives they have been kind to us. And we love them. Our idea of what good is is rooted and grounded in that sixth sola. Sola feelings. 
But what does God say good is? Well, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, we are given the definition of good, verses 17 and 18. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him. And that man that went out on that journey is Jesus and began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And we need to understand this encounter because we probably have heard this encounter before. But we really need to think through this encounter. Because this man came up to Jesus, a man who lived perfectly, who was by every definition good. And that man, Jesus, he replied to that man that no man, no matter how nice, no matter how kind, no matter how truthful, no matter how gentle or humble, no matter how perfectly they teach the law, the Word of God, no man is good. God is good. Jesus is good. And He is good because He's God. That man was right to call Him good, but for the wrong reason. What Jesus was getting at here was that that man was looking at what he thought was a man, a mere man, and calling him good when only God is good. That man was right in calling Jesus the good teacher, but he was wrong in why he was calling him the good teacher. Because he, Jesus, alone is the good teacher. Only because he is God. And He alone is good. He is the definition of good. And for this reason, we should stop thinking of ourselves or others as good. But as this man was looking at Jesus and even calling Him good, even though he was right about Jesus being good, he was wrong about why He was good. Because it wasn't the human actions, those actions that Jesus did to others that made him good. He was good because he was God. And that's the only reason he was good. No human is good. We cannot be good. We are evil, as we are told in Genesis chapter 6. But what is evil? Well, evil is not something that's easy to define. Oh, we have a sense of what evil is. We know evil when we encounter it. What happened to Dinah today in our account? That is evil. But is evil subjective like good is? Is it subjective in our hearts? Because the Germans during World War II, they who murdered the multiplied millions of people those that were actually doing it and those that came up with what they called the final solution, they didn't think that what they were doing was evil. In fact, what they were doing in their minds was getting rid of evil, not evil in itself. And this is why we need to ground our thinking to understand what evil is and what it is in truth. We need to understand what the Bible says evil is. And here we run into a problem. 
Because the Bible speaks of evil. It tells of evil, acknowledges that there is evil. But when we search the Bible to tell us this is evil, as it does in telling us what good is, we're left wanting. Do a Bible search. Do a word search in the Bible for evil, and you will find many places, many times that are describing evil, describing people who evil, actions that are evil, nations that are evil, and even Satan. But you will actually have to read and think in the Bible to gain a true biblical understanding of what God says evil is. Because the Bible never tells us when God created evil. And the reason is that God did not create evil. The essence of evil is not a created thing. It's not a physical thing. It's a lack of, it's a privation of a good thing. As Christian philosopher J.P. Moreland has noted, evil is a lack of goodness. It is goodness spoiled. You can have good without evil. But you cannot have evil without good. And this is why there will be a new heaven and a new earth that will exist without evil. And why evil could not exist until after God created the good. You see, evil is the same thing as cold. It's the same thing as darkness. It's not real on its own. Evil is the absence of goodness. Cold is the absence of heat. Darkness is the absence of light. But what is evil? Well, those verses that I read from Romans 3, they define evil for us. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. And you're thinking, what does righteousness mean? What does that mean? I have to, we have to be able to define what is righteous because there are none that are righteous. What does that mean? Righteousness is being morally ethically, and positionally perfect all the time. Every nanosecond of your life. And even more than that, deeper than that, it is being perfect to the very core of your being. In essence, it means being good. And as Jesus demonstrated to us, there are none that are good. There is none that is righteous. No, not one. Verse 11 of Romans 3. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And again, God uses Himself as the definer of what good and evil is. And therefore, we know what evil is. No one understands. No one seeks God. And what verse 11 is telling us is that we have deluded ourselves into thinking that verse 10 is not true because we think in our heart I don't know. I, I think I'm trying. I, I, I really am trying to do my best. I really am seeking after God. And this is why we have verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. There. It's clear. It's crystal clear. That in the sight of God, by His standard, and His standard is really the only standard that matters, there is no one that does good. And that means that all those kind, selfless actions that people do, 
are not what we think they are. They're not good. They may be kind. They may be genuine. And they may even be nice, but they are not good. You see, God sees in those people what we cannot. Verses 13 and 7 through 17 of Romans 3. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under the lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And verse 18 is the demarcation line between good and evil. And we don't believe this. We don't think that this is true. We look within ourselves and scoff just a little bit. We think to ourselves, I don't know. I do seek God. I do try to be a nice person. I am a good person. Or we will look at others, especially little ones, and think to ourselves, they're not evil. They're not a monster of, of, of iniquity. They're sweet. They're kind. They're loving. And we think this way because Romans 3, verse 18 is true. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And this is us. And the thing that we need to do is we need to change our focus on sin, which is evil, to gain a right point of view concerning sin and goodness. And once again, I'm going to read one of those articles from our Confession of Faith concerning original and indwelling sin so that you can grasp what we mean. We believe that by the disobedience of Adam, original sin is spread throughout the whole human race. It's a corruption of the entire nature of man and a hereditary evil found even in the infants in their mother's womb. It is therefore so vile and abominable in the sight of God that it is sufficient to condemn the human race. It is not abolished or even eradicated even by regeneration. In chapters like today's, they're a problem for many people because it's chapters such as ours today's that are used as proof that either God is not good or there cannot be a God. And even for the redeemed, for those whose hearts have been regenerated, who now can see God as God and themselves as needing a Savior, even for us, we can get confused and we can get very uncomfortable with chapters such as ours from today. And the problems that we face when we read chapters such as ours from today, the problem that we face when we deal with evil in our lives and even evil within ourselves, is not God. It's us. We don't understand evil. We don't understand, we don't grasp sin, which is the beginning and the very essence of evil personified. We, we think that evil is an action that is contrary to how we think things should be. And we think that sin is either an evil thought or an evil action towards humans. 
We, in essence, what we do is that we use man as both the defining factor for both of those things. And we need to change our point of view. We need to gain a better vantage point to understand what they are. And sin is this. It is the opposite of God. It is the larceny, the treason of the created in the image of God creature against the God that created it. It is the thinking that we have a right to disobey God. And we don't understand. We read this chapter, the events from chapter 34, and think, how could a good God allow such evil? Since God is sovereign over all things, why would He, if He is a good God, allow such horrible things to happen to innocent people? We need to reform. We need to gain a better perspective. And to do this, we need to go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1 God is the reason that there is life. He is the reason that all things exist. And He is the reason that He created. He didn't create out of loneliness or out of need or out of boredom. He is complete. He is the definition of awesome. He is the definition of perfection, of righteousness. He is glorious and He is holy. And he created out of the overflow of the love and the grandeur that is found within the Trinity of himself. His name was supreme before creation over all that was. And he desired to magnify his name to an even greater degree. So he created because he could. And because he knew that His great and mighty name would be proclaimed and as, as His glory would be demonstrated to the greatest degree through His creation. Through the redemption of His creation. And this is why we have Genesis 1.1 and every verse from there all the way to, Re to Revelation 22.21. And we must constantly remind ourselves of this truth. We must refocus. We must recenter. We must reform. We must know God as He says that He is. Psalm 86 5. For you, Lord, are good and by nature forgiving and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Psalm 119.68 You are good and you do good. 1 Samuel 2.2 There is no one holy like Yahweh. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Psalm 77.13 O God, your way is holy. What God is great like God? Psalm 99.5 Exalt Yahweh our God and worship at the footstool of His feet. Holy is He. Revelation 4.8 Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. We must know God as He says that He is. And remember this always. And the reason for this is because we are created in His image. 
And because we are created in His image and we have sinned against Him, we desire not only to worship, but to be worshipped. Our fallen, evil, sinful hearts must be course-corrected and we must use sola scriptura to correct our minds, to recenter our hearts, to bring us back to the reality of God, especially when we encounter accounts such as ours from today. Because what is spoken of in our chapter today is not an isolated incident, not something that has very seldom occurred. There is evil in this world. And this is the truth that many Christians fail to realize, even though they've been warned of this very thing. This is what we're told in John 3.19. This is the judgment, that the light came into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. And yet we don't believe this to be true. We actually think that people are basically good. That if given the chance, they will do good. Will act kindly. But we see from our chapter today that that is simply not the truth. Shechem proved that this was not the truth in the manner in which he treated Dinah. But he's not alone in acting evil in this chapter. Verse 5 from that chapter, we learn that Jacob, the father of Dinah, he was responsible for her. He understood the culture that was around him, that he lived in. He knew that it wasn't just different. It was pagan, and it was evil. And it was the decision by Jacob to stop at Shechem and live there that brought about this incident. He was on his way back to Bethel, the place where God had revealed himself before. The place that he's going to end up finally living at. The place that he was supposed to go to. In fact, when Jacob spoke to his wives in chapter 31 about leaving Laban, he calls God the God of Bethel there. Verse 31. And this is where he was supposed to end up. Where he will finally end up making his home. So why did he stop at Shechem? Because of worldly things. And truthfully, it's a smart and logical place to stop. It's a good financial decision. You see, Shechem was at a crossroad of commerce. There would have been a lot of conveniences because of that. Trade would have been better there. There would have been a Target, even a Starbucks. And yet, Jacob knew. He knew the people of this area, what they were like, and still he allowed his daughter to go and hang out with the local girls. And what's wrong with that, you ask? I mean, didn't Dinah need to be around girls her own age? You know, girls want to have fun. But do not be deceived. Bad company will, will corrupt good morals. 1 Corinthians 15.33 And you're thinking about what is a parent supposed to do? Do you have any idea, David, how angry little Susie is going to be if I tell her that she can't go hang out with those pagans? If she can't go to that dance, she can't go to that party? I mean, was he really supposed to not allow his child to hang out with the locals? She could have evangelized them. Isn't this what we're told by those parents who send their children to the government indoctrination institutions? That their children are going out making disciples? That they need to be exposed to the world to make friends with the world? Isn't that how we're going to win the world? even though we have James 4.4 4 that says, you adulterers, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. And the manner in which Jacob leads during this entire account proves that he's not only a weak man, but that he's also evil. He never intervenes on behalf of his daughter. He does nothing to protect her honor, and he does nothing to protect the honor of his God and how his sons deal with the people of this town. And the men of this town, they weren't innocent either. Oh, sure, they had nothing to do with how Dinah was treated, but they sure coveted all the belongings that Jacob had, so much so that they were willing to go under the knife to get them. And then there's Simeon and Levi, the full brothers of Dinah through Leah. It was their grand scheme to have the men of the town circumcised and, to, and, to, and surrender them harmless or helpless against their wrath. They used the covenant sign of God as an instrument for evil. I mean, think about this. Under the pretense of righteousness, they're plotting evil. And as we're told in verses 27 through 29, it may have been Simeon and Levi that did the killing, but it was all the sons of Jacob that did the plundering. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And they captured and they plundered all their wealth and all their little ones and all their wives, even all that was in the houses. And then it's then, it's then that Jacob finally steps up and confronts his sons, verses 30 and 31. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Am I men, being few in number? They're going to gather together against us, and they're going to strike us and destroy us. I am my household. But they said to him, Should he treat our sister as a harlot? The brothers of Dinah, they were concerned about how Dinah was treated. Dad, he was concerned about his own neck. And we in our sinfulness think that the actions of Simeon and Levi against Shechem, oh, they were warranted. Maybe he should have stopped there. But they were warranted what they did to Shechem. And God would say otherwise. The Levitical laws that would be given 400 years later, they not only prove that what happened in our account today is not an isolated incident, but they also tell us how God views this. In Deuteronomy 22, almost half of that chapter is devoted to how to deal with a situation such as ours from today. And even there, in the most extreme cases, where a man defiles a married woman, and married woman is the key phrase there, he alone is put to death. And that's in a case involving a married woman. But if she's not betrothed, that man must only then pay her father 50 shekels, and he must marry her, and he could never divorce her. And this is what seems to have happened in the case of Dinah and Shechem. God does not condone capital punishment for this crime, and we don't think that this is equitable or right, because if this was my daughter, we think that God is wrong, that he got this one wrong. And we think that we are good, that people deserve good. And we're taught this 
from early on in our culture. We're, we're told that we have a right to health care, a right to have a comfortable and safe place to live, a right to overeat, a right to have entertainment. And we train up our children to think that they have a right. We train them up to think that they're good and not a sinner in need of a Savior. And we very often teach our children that they are good by not teaching them to obey us the first time that we command them. And we don't teach them that they are evil for not obeying us. And we prove that we are evil by not teaching them and by not obeying God as he has commanded us to teach them. And Dinah, she wasn't an innocent victim here either. We're told in verse 1 that she was the one who went out to see the local girls. She should have known what they were like. She was old enough to be able to understand evil from righteousness, and yet she wanted to go out and see the daughters of the land, to go and hang out with them. You see, we need to change our point of view. Because very often in life, our eyes play tricks on us. We think that we see something differently than it really is. Something hung on a wall could look like it's crooked from one angle, but it's when you change your perspective a little bit, when you look at it from another angle, when you finally gain a different point of view, it's then that you find out your eyes have been playing a trick on you. And this is the reality from our account from today. Don't get me wrong. What has happened both to Dinah and then to the people of Shechem, it's all evil. The men of this city were innocent of the defilement of Dinah. And the women and the children of the city, they were innocent as well. And Dinah was innocent in not desiring this to happen. So how could God allow this to happen? Well, maybe perhaps God had nothing to do with it. Maybe it was outside of his will. Maybe he was just focusing on something else at that moment and that one slipped past him. Or maybe things like this just happen. He's trying to do his best to stop evil. Or maybe there is no God. And evil is the proof that there can't be God. Since in our estimation, a good God would never allow evil. But if you are the joy that was set before Christ on the cross, if you have been redeemed, if you have had the eyes of your heart open to the reality of God, then you must hold that Scripture, the Word of God, the written Word of God, trumps all feelings. It is the rule and life for the Christian, and therefore for the church. And for this reason, you must understand that what Romans 8.28 says concerning those that are the elect of God is truth. All things work for good for those that love Him, that are called according to His purpose. We must read we must understand. We must believe the truth of Ephesians 1, 22-23, where we're told that He, He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, 
which is his body, the fullness of him who, is, who fills all in all. All things that are working together for our good happen for the church. And this is what is meant in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, that all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. All authority. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I command you. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. All authority has been given to Christ. Therefore, go and build his church. Find the bricks and the mortar that he has in this world and tell them the truth of him. For their good, for your good, but primarily for his glory. And for this reason, you must firmly stand on the truth concerning God as told to us in Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 10. Listen to the word of God, saints. Remember this. Be assured. Cause it to return to your heart, your heart, you transgressors. This is God speaking to his children. Remember the former things long, long past. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things which have not been, saying, my counsel will be established, and my, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And what happened in our account from today, as hard as it is to understand, to fathom, to accept, this was the will of God in the life of all that were involved in this account. And this is a hard truth to accept, but nonetheless it is truth. It was the will of God for our good and for the church. The will of God. That's an easy thing to say. But it's not an easy thing to explain because the Bible demonstrates that there are three wills of God. The first is a decorative will. What he commands happens. And it happens instantly as told to us in places such as Genesis 1. That's his will. And then the Bible speaks of his perceptive will. The perceptive will of God. Those are the commands of God that carry a punishment but which are not immediate. The command to not eat lest you die is a great example of the perceptive will of God. And those verses I read from Isaiah 46 are another example of his perceptive will. He declared from the beginning and to the end, and all the things that, that happened in between are his counsel, his counsel, and they will stand. And then the third will of God spoken of in the Bible is his permissive will. And these are the evil actions of men that God permits to happen. They don't happen outside of his control. And he is not the author of evil, of sin, or of Satan. And yet Satan is his Satan, as proven to us by Job chapters 1 and 2, by the truth told to us in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, when Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good in order to do what has happened on this day, to keep many people alive. 
This truth is told to us in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. The telling of the most evil and sinful action that mankind has ever undertaken. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The late R.C. Sproul wrote concerning this truth. If, if we are in any just way to speak of God's permissive will, we must be careful to notice not only the word permissive, but also the word will. Whatever God permits, he sovereignly and efficiently wills to permit. If I have a choice to sin or not to sin, God also has a choice in the matter. He always has the ability and the authority to stop me from exercising my will. He has the absolute power to restrain me. He can vaporize me instantly if it is his pleasure. Or, or he can keep me on a long leash and let me do my worst. And he will only permit me to do my worst if my worst coincides with his perfect providential plan. And when we acknowledge this truth, we run hard up against the truth that this is the God that we toy with. The one that we are so often fickle with. This God is an awful God in the best sense of the word. He's an awesome God. And it's when we are brought hard up against this understanding of evil and good, of innocent and profane. None of the people of our account today are innocent. No one is innocent or good. And this is the basic truth told to us in places such as Matthew 7, 11. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask? And since none are innocent, since all are egregious sinners that are outside of God, the question that we should be asking is not, why did God allow this? The question that we should be asking of ourselves, why is this not the norm for me? People are not good. People are are by nature evil. Why? Why are actions not happening to us like this? Why is this not the norm for our life? And since we are sinful, the explanation that we come up with as to why the account from today is not the norm is because people are generally good. And really, there's only a few that are evil. And in this, we prove that we are, at our core, evil. We think that evil is not what it should be. And we think that evil is not what should be happening to us all the time. We think that it's not the natural thing in creation since the fall. 
and we think this way because God is good. Because in His common grace, He is intervening in the life and the actions of men. The only reason that there is not anarchy in our world, the only reason that there is not a nuclear winter being rained down on man by man is because of the restraining goodness of God in the common grace given to men. And we are given verses such as Romans 13, 1-3 to prove this. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist have been appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists that authority has has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good, but for evil. We think that in our goodness, that man came up with civilization. But we are not the reason that there are moral and ethical laws and standards enforced. Man is not good. Man is evil. And we did this. We corrupted all that is good, as told to us in Romans 8.22. And all creation groans under the corruption, the corruption of mankind. And we are told that part of the Holy Spirit's work in this realm is to restrain evil outside of us, and inside of us, as told to us in 2 Thessalonians 2.6. So what is the answer then? What are we supposed to do with accounts like today? What are we supposed to do with the truth that God is good and that we are not? That we cannot be good? What are we supposed to do? We are to rejoice. Again, another one of articles from our Elder Confession of Faith the justice and mercy of God in Christ. We believe that God, who is perfectly just and merciful, sent His Son to make satisfaction and to bear the punishment for sin. God executed His holy justice on His Son when He laid the iniquity of the elect on Him and poured out His goodness and His mercy on them who were were worthy, who were guilty and worthy of damnation. Out of a most perfect love, he gave his son to die for them, and he raised him for their justification that through him they may have immortality and life eternal. What should we do when we are confronted with the reality of man? We should refocus on the reality of God. God is good all the time, in all ways, no matter how hard your life is. Because You, as you sit there in your house, in your air conditioning, with your refrigerator stocked full of food, wondering, why is life unfair to me? This life, no matter how hard it is for any human, is far better than any human ever deserves. And this brings me back once again. And and why, in our view of chapters like today, why I can entitle this sermon, It's a Wonderful Life, because we are given 1 Corinthians 5.21. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are to rejoice because the blackness of sin, the reality of that all mankind are nothing but monsters of iniquity, these, these are the things that are the backdrop on which the glorious, radiant beauty of God shines. Listen to the goodness of God on our behalf. Romans 4, 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is a man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus, equip you in every good thing to do his will by doing in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not, also, not as in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your, your salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make every grace abound to you, so that in everything, at every time, having every sufficiency, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And saints, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5.19. And we know this only because God is good. He has taken us, one of those that did not seek him, and he has made us his son, in his son, by his son, Saints, there is evil in this world. And there will be times in our lives that this will be made manifest to us. There's evil in this world. And even within ourselves, even after redemption. But never fear. Never fear. Revelation 6.2 and then I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out overcoming and to overcome. When we see evil in our midst, when we experience evil in our midst, don't fret, don't fear, don't doubt. We know that for those that God loves, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. But you know in your heart, I do fret. I do fear. I fear for my own safety at times, and I fear for the safety of my loved ones. What am I supposed to do with this? Admit it to God. Be real with him. He already knows this truth already. You're not fooling him. You're only depriving yourself of the peace that passes all understanding because you're unwilling to go to the mat with God. 
unwilling to be honest and open with the one who poured out his wrath on his son for you. He has made you good. Not in yourself, but in him. And because we are in him, because because of the one who was sent out to overcome, the one who told us truth concerning the evil that we are, and the truth of the world in John 16, 33, when he said, these things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Saints, we are supposed to have peace here. Now, even in this fallen world, we are supposed to have peace because not only has he overcome the world, but because we are in him, we too, you too, saint, you will overcome the world as well. Listen again to Revelation, Revelation 15, 2. Then I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who have overcome the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Saints, no matter what evil you face in this world, because we have been given new eyes to see, we are supposed to look through these eyes. We are supposed to have an eternal perspective of life, all life. Knowing that because of the grace of God bestowed on us in the propitiation of our sins, because of, the lamb, because of the blood of the Lamb of God, because of this, we are in the good. We're in God. And God is in us. And He loves us. And nothing, nothing, nothing in this life happens outside of His control or outside of his will. And he loves you. And he works all things together for your good. But good doesn't necessarily mean easy or pleasant. Good is only defined by God. And God is good. And he's answering your prayer as he conforms you into the image of his Son. Saints, rejoice in this truth and wonder. Wonder at the evil that is you. You know the evil inside of you. Wonder. But also, overarching that, wonder at the good that is God that is found in you. Wonder at the good that is life, that is all around you, the good that he has bestowed on you, the good that he has poured out on you, knowing that you don't deserve any of them, And then wonder, as you understand that these are just all merely shadows 
of the reality of the eternal good that you will experience because of the good that lives within you. Saints, wonder at the wonderful life that you have been given in Christ. Let's pray.